Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome to the 10% True Podcast. Quick message from me before you get stuck in. This podcast is free, so there's no advertising. I don't monetize it on YouTube. You don't have to sit through any annoying adverts, and I don't even ask for any money through Patreon. But if you could, in exchange for that, drop me a like, leave a comment, share my content, and if you're listening to the podcast version, maybe leave a review of the channel, that would be hugely appreciated. It will help me to grow my audience, which is really what I'm trying to achieve. Anyway, with that, I'll let you get back to listening. Enjoy. Super. Pyro, welcome to 10% True. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. Thanks, Steve. Uh, very good getting together with you and, and uh, with my crewmate from 30 years ago. So this is this is really special, and, and uh, Tom, I have to say, um, Pyro is is uh, your call sign, but uh, I have to say particularly thank you to you because you, I think, had heard that I was looking to do an EF111 uh, interview, and you, you got yeah. in touch, and then you put... put and I'm especially, uh, uh, I'm especially glad that you said you were looking for, you know, for some exceptional people. That way I re- reached out and got, got a hold of Dave. Oh, please. That was saving my watch. <laughs> getting big. <laughs> So you, you've already mentioned it, the, the ultimate objective behind us all talking, or you talking and me asking questions and listening, um, hopefully, is to talk about 31 years ago, the EF-111, the Raven um, jamming platform, the mission um, that it took on for Operation Desert Storm, and the fact you guys, I know you weren't hard crewed, you didn't fly all your missions in Desert Storm together, but you did fly some missions together. Um, I, I should say for the people at home, that this has taken a little while to organize mostly because of me actually i, I took a few months out of uh, doing interviews and uh, pyro was really patient and um but in the meantime pyro and super have been exchanging emails and copying me in and there's just this huge brain dump of things to talk about i mean just gold absolute gold it's and we're hoping to get as much of this into the um the, the next interviews as as possible and i say interviews because there are going to be more than one we we hope we'll see but before we get on to that, then, um, I mean, I think the place to start is for an, in some introductions. I've just referred to you by your call signs, but can you can you tell us who you are and um, and maybe give us a quick um, and I say quick, I mean take as long as you want, but a, a an, an an introduction to who you are and how you got into the EF one eleven, what your career path to the aeroplane was. Uh, uh, I'll go. Go ahead. So, uh, Tom Pyro, I picked up the call sign as I explained not because of my fantastic prowess with doing the dump and burn on the 111, but rather from managing the heater in a tent uh, at Aviano Air Base and not burning the tent down. So pyro. 
Uh, I first got interested in flying, uh, I suppose, uh, when I went to visit the air show at a nearby airfield, Selfridge Air Force Base. They had F-106, Delta Darts, gotta love it. And, uh, and Bob Hoover, Bob Hoover was doing a demonstration, I think, on one of my first air shows. And, uh, and then sometime or another, going back and forth to Kentucky for summertime uh, visits, stopped in at the Air Force Museum, which is now the, what is it, the National Air Force Museum. At that time, large portion of the planes were sitting out on the tarmac, the uh, most fantastic of which was the XB-70. There's probably some good footage of the XB-70 around there in Edwards somewhere, uh, as well as all over the internet. And, uh, not far from there. Ah. And so, uh, so I just really got in love with that and uh, the idea. Fortunately, my brother, three years older, had a good high school counselor, and uh, and he in- he investigated the uh, Air Force Academy. He didn't quite have all the blocks checked, but I had three years to catch up. And so, I informed my high school counselor uh, what what my plan was. Joined Civil Air Patrol, got on a swim team. Uh, threw the basketball far enough so I could pass the physical fitness test and uh, got myself into the Air Force Academy. Got out of basic training with the lowest military proficiency average in my unit. And so no aviation programs for me. Fortunately, my crazy AOC when I was a senior, he thought that he would get a better grade if he had as many people as possible going to Shepard Air Force Base. So I got to go to Shepard, to Injet. And uh, almost didn't make it through NJEP, but the uh, the flight commander, my T-38 program, he, uh, through his great wisdom and perseverance, uh, chose not to cut me because normally NJEP, you don't lose any pilots through there. But uh, but so I made it through NJEP and, uh, and then went to lead-in fighter training, uh, where they called that, uh, I don't know if, if you've heard the term before, but they called it tacumcising, that uh, they try to beat the ATC out of you and get you more involved in what tactical air command is all about. The, uh, in addition to a little bit of BFM, uh, they taught us how to land that airplane. Very eye-watering. We were always very scared of the final turn in the T-38. They beat that out of us too and showed us that you can almost land that airplane in full mill power, s- snatch the throttles and plop it down on the ground. It was just, the airplane was just all the way around the final turn, bloop, touchdown. That was a perfect lead-in fighter training landing in the P-38B. And then uh, F-111 training in the A model at Upper Hayford. Really enjoyed being at Mountain Home, Idaho as a single guy. Came back later married, and I didn't seem to have as much free time. <laughs> but uh, and then, uh, so A model training did pretty good there. I had a little catching up to do because I made a couple errors at lead-in fighter training, and so I got to talk into the by the commander when I first showed up. But uh, I only threw one long bomb for the most part while I was at the uh, initial training. It was two and a half miles long, though, so uh, <laughs> so I <laughs> so I got I got sent home from the range. But that was the only time I got sent home from the range at uh, at Mountain Home at, at uh, initial training. And then Upper Hayford, so uh, two years at Upper Hayford, did pretty good. I, I, you know, I got my uh, um, initial qual uh, on time, but uh, but then about two years 
year and a half into it, got crewed with a brand new guy, and uh, we ended up getting the shortest F-111E model flight on record, as far as you know. We logged a .1 because we got airborne for about 20 seconds, maybe 10. And uh, then I took the departure end cable, avoided destroying the town of Lower Hayford, and uh, and then uh, my squadron commander, you know, was thinking that plus a couple other mistakes. Time time for you to go look for a, another F-111 assignment. Well, if I'm on my way out of the flying, I might as well go pursue one of my passions, which was electronic warfare. So at the academy, I was an electrical engineer uh, degree, and so uh, so the opportunity to go to the EF-111 came about. I thought, you know, might as well spend my last four years flying in the EF-111, and uh, and so that's how I got there. So I was kind of a kind of an average pilot, but very enthusiastic. I don't think I ever lacked for enthusiasm uh, all the while I flew. Uh, I don't buy any of that, Tom. You're a great <laughs> pilot. You're a great pilot. I had more fun flying with you than I think anybody else because he would try anything, right? <laughs> he, he would do stuff. I, I was a little bit worried that the host country might kick us out of a, a couple of our deployments, <laughs> but, uh, but it was great. I, I really enjoyed flying with them, and uh, I was thrilled. And we're both here in one piece, right? There's... There's old yeah. pilots and bold pilots, but there's not any old bold pilots, they say. Uh, yeah. I, I thought you did a great job. Uh, let me introduce myself a little bit. Uh, my name's Dave Harris. I, my dad was uh, an airline pilot, and he flew uh, F-86s in the Utah Air Guard and just loved that experience. Uh, we took Aviation Week and Space Technology magazine. He got it every week. And so there were all these Aviation Week and Space Technology magazines uh, around the house. And I just fell in love with airplanes and aerospace and technology in general uh, growing up. That's the only thing I ever wanted to be. Uh, never really tempted to go into the airlines. I just wanted to fly fast and low and uh, do all that. Well, when I was in high school, I went to get my flight physical, uh, where they told me that, dude, you're not going to be flying as a pilot in anything, right? Look at your right eye scores on your eye test. And, uh, and so I almost joined the Navy. I almost went to the nuclear Navy because I heard they paid the most. Uh, but uh, cooler heads prevailed. And I ended up going into the Air Force as a, as a navigator. And I thought I would, uh, you know, prove myself and then maybe I could get a waiver to become a pilot later. It turned out that uh, this is one of those unanswered prayers can be the best thing that ever happened to you. That happened to me in several different uh, occasions. I didn't get a UPT slot, so I went to Desert Storm, which... Um, ended up being very helpful for my future career advancement. Uh, later on, I wasn't selected as a NASA astronaut, but if I had been, I would have missed out on a whole, whole a slew of other great opportunities. I, I just ended up having an outstanding Air Force career. Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop doing it. 
even after 32 years, I got totally bored and missed my tribe. And so now I teach at the Air Force Test Pilot School. I teach the mission systems curriculum there, uh, along with uh, a great cadre of folks. But from, uh, from high school on, I, like I said, I went to navigation school. And back then you had an opportunity to go either as a taker, transport, bomber, that track, or you could go to the fighter track, or you could go to electronic warfare school. And now I, I have to discipline myself because you can't say electronic warfare anymore. It's electromagnetic warfare. So I have to get one of those elastics and flip my wrist every time I get electronic <laughs> to train me out of it. But I'll say it a million times today. Uh, and, and I decided I wanted to do that, right? I wanted to go to EWO school because I wanted to be sort of the main mission person and not just a, a supporting cast member, right? Uh, but it was risky because most of the assignments were going to be 52s and, and other um, EWO positions in other aircraft where you, you were sort of defending the ship uh, against attacks. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily want that. Uh, and the EF-111 was my target, right? That was the cool thing. That was the one I wanted. Uh, from the beginning, and I let everybody know that that was my goal. And uh, fortunately for me, we did have a, an assignment for my class that went to the EF-111, and I was fortunate enough to get that. I was so happy, so happy to get that and to go to Mountain Home, uh, Idaho, where they first uh, taught us the regular F-111A, so I got to fly the bomb dropping version of the F-111 uh, and then transition to the EF-111, which I loved. I loved the people there. I loved uh, everything about it. I was just super excited and, um, and checked out Mission Qualified about the time of Operation Just Cause, the, Panama operation. I was too junior to participate in that, but I uh, I actually went to Desert Storm, and Tom and I got to fly together. And since then, I went to uh, the Air Force Test Pilot School to be the EWO to do the system improvement program for the EF-111, uh, which was canceled about halfway through my course. And so I uh, ended up graduating test pilot school uh, with no weapon system, uh, I ended up transitioning to the B-1 and doing the con conventional conversion of the B-1 from its nuclear delivery mission to a conventional mission, which is what they do now. And then one thing led to another. I got uh, to do a bunch of developmental test assignments uh, and got to see pretty much everywhere we do developmental tests in the Air Force, which culminated uh, many years later uh, uh, I was the center commander for the Air Force Test Center, uh, stationed at Edwards, but overseeing a bunch of great bases like Eglin and uh, had a lot of time at Holloman, a lot of time at uh, Edwards and, and some other test bases. And you've recently retired? I retired in the summer of 2018. 
and uh, failed miserably as a retiree. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. Right? So uh, I, had, uh, I heard that there was a position opening up at the test plant school and I took it, even though my wife and I, I uh, had just built this house, the one that I'm sitting in now, which is in Utah. Uh, I, I went to Edwards uh, that month, pretty much, and uh, interviewed for that job. And now I live in a, a, a little rental house. Uh, maybe future interviews, you'll see uh, uh, a much simpler background. But uh, this is my retirement house. I'm here for the Martin Luther King four-day weekend, so it's cool. Uh, so Pyro shared his cool sign um, origins etymology with us. What, where does super come from? Well, super. If I don't know if uh, if you're familiar with Super Dave Osborne, he was a comedian whose uh, act was uh, sort of an evil can evil kind of an act. You know who evil can evil was? Yeah, I know him. The yeah. uh, motorcycle stunt stunt motorcycle guy who was very much a showman. But Super Dave Osborne's comedy routine was he'd come up with some great stunt. And then, of course, at the end of it, he managed to, like, blow himself up or get run over by a steamroller or <laughs> something like that. So uh, that's probably how it stuck to me. Uh, I like to think it's because I'm just so awesome that it's probably because I wind up getting run over by a steamroller. At the end. <laughs> so, so talk about... The I think what we'd like to do as a, a sort of um, a flow for this conversation is is um, talk about the the requirement for the EF one eleven. Why did it come about? What was there before it? What did it look like? And then we're going to, if if time allows, in this conversation, we'll then actually talk about your views, your personal views as operators of that platform, in, in terms of you know how capable it was, how what was it like to fly, and so on and so forth. So. I don't know uh, who wants to pick this up or if you if you sort of just want to share your thoughts sort of um, sequentially. But what, what was the reason for the EF-111? How did it come about and, and what was the mission set that it was intended to uh, execute on? So, um, and so uh, I, I didn't know the history of it when I got into the airplane. I knew a lot about electronic warfare and radios and radars. And uh, while going through my training, one of, one of the folks that I think uh, Dave said he, he flew with, uh, Rat, Rattery, uh, I'm pretty sure he told me that he had flown the EB-66 one time when we were doing a, a simulator or doing something together. And so, uh, so I'd, I'd always been curious, once we lined up this interview, I went back and did a little research on the EB-66. And it the the B-66 airframe was kind of a perhaps an also ran airframe and the Air Force needed something in uh, in the Vietnam era. Uh, we had wild weasels with the F-105s. I, I think you've done some interviews with those guys. And, uh, and the B-66 was also was always just kind of a tired, uh, difficult to maintain jamming platform. In fact, it was so difficult to maintain that when they retired it, they just destroyed them in theater. They never bothered to bring the airframes back. And I found a pretty nice paper written up by a, uh, a Maxwell Air Force Base student, no doubt, that uh, gave some nice history on the EB-66 and then how it transitioned into the EF-111. 
And then through the through the beauty of Google, I found a couple of Google books that were actually congressional testimony talking about the 73 and the 74 budget. And uh, when they when they pushed all the EB-66s into the sea or whatever they did with them over there, uh, they immediately started looking around for another platform. And, uh, and the F-111 came up as a possibility because the Air Force did not want to get stuck with the EA-6, the EA-6B. They, uh, they, we now, the current Department of Defense very much uses requirements to try to drive our wants and needs and, and turn them into actual needs. The F-111 itself, the, the original F-111 with that joint requirement for uh, Navy and Air Force using a common airframe, that was a requirements-driven acquisition. Didn't really turn out as planned. There wasn't, a, you know, there wasn't any cost savings. We ended up with a rather expensive airplane. But the Air, the Air Force wanted to avoid getting told they had to buy the, the EA-6B. And so they decided that uh, they had to have a high speed jammer and then that would put the EA-6B out of the running. And, uh, and so the F-111A models were kind of a available platform. There was enough of them. Not sure how exhaustive their analysis was, but it appeared the Air Force had done some analysis and, and wanted to go with a similar number as what they had originally had of the EB-66s, about 42. They figured 42 would be enough uh, to prevent training shortfalls. The B-66 platform ran into a training problem because they were deploying everything and they had nothing left over for training. Uh, so they somehow the number 42 was the right size number and, and the bill, uh, once they got some estimates, it seemed to be kind of a directed contract offered up to either General Dynamics or to Grumman because one had the airframe and one had the, the jamming systems. Grumman won the, uh, was awarded the contract and the price was just under a billion dollars. So, uh, so that seemed to be the, re from that little bit of reading I did in the 73, 74 budget being presented to Congress, that's, that's what the Air Force was able to uh, convince that they really needed that, uh, that fast jet that could keep up with all the other uh, tactical bombers and, and 42 was the right size number. So that was from the research. I didn't know that at the time. When I got into the platform in uh, 1987, we were just starting to get the initial cadre was coming back into the platform. Those guys that brought the squadron online, uh, you know, passed their first ORI in 83, 84, they went off to headquarters assignments and, uh, and went and did great things, uh, uh, you know, helped a lot with getting electronic warfare integrated into, the, into all the planning processes. Those guys were just coming back. And so we, we would have talked a lot about how they figured out the close-in jam patterns and the standoff jam patterns. And so we would have had some of the history on how they, how they came up with the employment concepts, but the, uh, all of the acquisition process, the requirements process, that wasn't day-to-day -day knowledge in the squadron. I had to do a little research to kind of find that. But uh, what other kind of things did you hear or read about, Dave? Super. Well, I, 
I think the context of the Cold War is pretty important for your listeners to understand. We we were going head to head, right? It was the democracies of the West against the, uh, the evil empire of the Soviet Union, and they had more stuff than we did. And it was going to, if it was going to be a slugfest, war of attrition. Um, they had an advantage, right? A numerical advantage over our qualitative advantage. So I think they ran a bunch of uh, simulations of those kind of engagements and and came up with a requirement to, hey, let's let's lower the probability of kill, right? Let's take a look at each one of the links of the kill chain and see where we can reduce the attrition that we're expecting in in a head-to-head confrontation across central Europe, right? Or uh, at the full of the gap. So, uh, so we took, we focus on the, the early stages of that kill chain, right? The finding of the target, the fixing of the target, um, those kinds of things. If we could lower the probabilities of, of the Soviet Union engaging a uh, uh, high number of targets, uh, we could get our attrition numbers down. I think that was the, the motivation for both the EA6B and the EF-11. The EF-11 was, uh, was faster. Uh, I, I know in, in some of our exercises, for instance, we would have to push the EA6Bs out early uh, so that they could arrive at the same time as everybody else. Which, which did not help their survivability, right? It was, it was pretty tough uh, sledding for those, for those guys in a, in a high-end uh, red flag kind of a scenario. So the EF-111 had its advantages. It also had the advantage of being more highly automated. So it, in the Navy EA-6B, there are three ECMOs, Electronic Countermeasures Officers, uh, in the EF-111, there's a single, right, with a computer that did a lot of the uh, housekeeping chores uh, about steering and finding uh, the various jammers. So, uh, so it was an improvement over the EA-6B, both in performance and uh, in efficiency of the crew. So the... Um... Yeah, so technical details. So uh, let's let's dig out some technical details. One one last thing. So the neat thing was we were getting funded all the way back in the 73, 74 budget. At the same time, they're inventing uh, red flag, uh, lead-in fighter training is uh, is coming of its own. And so by the time Dave and I get in this platform, it's it's 10 years mature The uh, as far as red flag goes in that high-intensity conflict. Uh, so I'd been over at, uh, in the European theater with the F-111E model. Uh, we had both a primary conventional mission and, and our strike nuclear missions, but, uh, but we got to fly in some of those mask packages over there. The mask packages, uh, you know, were key to try to overwhelm the enemy. And as, as Dave said, you know, the kill chain. So Dave, you mentioned super, you mentioned the, uh, the automation it seemed to me that you could run as many as 40 jamming programs automated with the, with the computer and, and maybe you could have another hundred or so stored in practice. I don't think you, you diluted the, 
the transmitters that much. But uh, yeah, uh, what was the max capability and the and the typical? Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting setup, and I guess we can talk about sort of how the the system is put together. Let me start big picture, and I'll go to a smaller picture. So if once once it was decided that the that the F one eleven airframe would be the host. Uh, obviously, there weren't a lot of additional crew positions, so that set the Grumman uh, engineers working on a more automated system. Now, remember, when we're talking about automation, these are 1970s computers, right? So think Pong versus you know, a modern computer game. Uh, but it was still a computer, and it was capable of managing... Um, some receivers and some jammers and keeping those jammers pointed to a particular geographic location. So uh, as the electronic warfare officer on the EF-11, that that was my responsibility, right? Uh, Most of the work uh, is done prior to the mission where you're developing the scenario, you're uh, very much shoulder to shoulder with uh, with our EF-11 Intel, which was Primo. Uh, those guys were very well plugged in uh, uh, and and often at odds with big Intel in the Air Force that had a much uh, a much different view of the importance of intelligence. We were we were linked with uh, Intel at the hip because we needed to know what was out there, exactly where they were. And not only that, but how were those systems processing signals uh, once the reflected energy uh, got back into their receivers, right? Uh, So it's not just what you can collect from a collection platform, It's, it's, analysis and exploitation of, of the actual system. So we, we relied very heavily on, um, on Intel sources. And the ones that were good were very good, right? Our EF-111 Intel was great. Um, big Intel sometimes was an impediment, um, very much more concerned with protecting information than distributing information to the people who needed it. Uh, and that becomes a, uh, a frustration later on in Desert Storm. But to get back to your uh, your point, Tom, the uh, there were ten jamming stations, so we could we could run ten different jammers uh, at different bands, from the VHF band all the way to the KU band. So if you're a electromagnetic kind of savvy person, that was, that was roughly the range. And that's where the, the targeting or the targeted radars resided, right? We wanted to go after those big early warning radars, the acquisition radars, the surveillance radars, the, the big radars like you see spinning around at the, at the International Airport, right? Not that, not necessarily the ones that track targets or do the command guidance of a command guided missile, for instance. We are taking out those early 
links of the kill chain so that they never really got to the part where they were engaging targets. Or if they did, they were greatly degraded because they would, would, would have to just look for targets through a soda straw. Sort of like if I asked you to find a bird uh, with a telescope, right? It would be very difficult to find uh, a particular bird and keep that bird in the crosshairs of a telescope just because your field of view is so restricted. As opposed to if, if I gave you a wide field of view and say, okay, now your telescope looks at the small crosshair in the center of this and you get a big picture and then you can go to the small. So we took out the big picture and we could do a variety of different jamming techniques from a library uh, that Intel had uh, worked with us to develop. And then we'd also set up the receivers so that they scanned just the frequencies that we were interested in uh, for all of the different threats that were out there. Um, and, and it turned out to be a very useful, um, practical system for, for EWOs like me to use. I was pretty happy with uh, the Grumman um, configuration and how they ran that system. It, it was pretty well thought through. Yeah, we didn't uh, we didn't have any data cartridge. I don't think that the no. F model guys the F model guys had some ability. I think and and the E models we had some kind of a pre programmed thing for the radar, but but all you had was a pre-programmed library that was there that you could pick from. Uh, so as I remember it, you'd go out to the jet and as, as soon as we had power on to, uh, to minimize your workload, you'd start, you'd start building your, your uh, intended jamming profile for that afternoon, evening or something like that. But you didn't, you didn't get to do it all in the squadron and carry out a, a thumb drive and plug it in. You, you had to start pulling down from the library and, and group and transmitters and jamming programs. Right, exactly. That was the that was sort of the art to the science. We would we would come up with a plan back at the squadron, and and then we'd take that on a piece of paper out to the jet, and then with our thumbs in on this little keypad between our uh, knees, we would program the jammers so that they would scan the right frequencies, and then we programmed the uh, our program the receivers so they'd scan the right frequencies and then program the jammers so that they could um, put energy on as many of those targets uh, to the best effect that we possibly could. And often uh, there were a lot more uh, emitters in the scenario than there were individual jammers. And so you would have to sort of do the best you could with the width of the beam width um, uh, sometimes you, you would pick a centroid between jammers, for instance, and that would be where the computer would keep that focused on as you transition, uh, through the attack pattern. Yeah. So by virtue, by virtue of having the inertial navigation system set up, which was a pretty good INS. So on, on a good day when it was running good. And in Desert Storm, fortunately, we had fantastic maintenance as well. We had, sure I think we had some of the some of the better, happier F-111 maintenance guys, and uh, 
and our our gear was running really good all the while we were there and so with your accurate so the aircraft knows where it is you program in where the where the intended targets are and it automatically uh constantly slewed the antennas and then we would typically fly with with a, a two ship and so i don't know would you guys ever divide up the spectrum or 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 uh, would you just kind of run the same targets so that there wasn't a big decision if if uh, one aircraft uh didn't make it well sometimes you you would have to do some of that but the goal was to always have somebody that was broadside to the target or slightly belly out to the target uh and of course, you couldn't do that forever because you would trans you, know, you would translate too far away from the attack axis. So you have to turn, uh, do a hard turn, and manage the energy uh, so that you could then roll out and go wings level again, just as your wingman started into his turn, uh, so that you always had somebody uh, with full power on the targets. So that's why we developed this sort of taco-shaped uh, close-in jamming orbit. Um, the, the transmitters were mounted in the belly of the jet, slight, canted slightly down. So if we were slightly belly out to the target, we were getting our maximum effect. Uh, and that's why the, that curvature is in the taco side of the orbit. So, if so we couldn't do that, then we would just be wings level and, and we could get uh, within the 3 dB points of, of the transmit antenna onto the target. So if I, if I just go back then a little bit to the geolocation or the Intel guys telling you where the threat emissors were, mm-hmm. did you have a pop-up capability then, a dynamic capability, so if something came on air and it wasn't geographically where it was supposed to be you could jam it anyway or could you only jam a system that you had been told that was in a certain set of you know lat long coordinates well the the receivers the the ones that were mounted up in the here this big pod that's up on top of the tail that's where the receivers reside uh and they they looked in all directions and we had um even very long wave receivers on the side of the, on the tail, and they went up and the higher the frequency, the smaller the actual hardware becomes. But those had a 360 degree unobstructed view up on top of the tail like that. So we could see uh, everything that we had programmed the computer to scan, regardless of where uh, where it ended up actually being, right? Uh, but the receivers can only get a line of position uh, if you wanted to narrow it down to a particular point on the ground, you had to cut some radials and see how that how that line of position would change over time. And that would give you a sense of how near or far the actual radiating signal was. So it took uh, a little bit of finesse to uh, interpret what the receivers were telling you. Uh, obviously, uh, the vast majority of uh, our intel was collected in advance by um, the, the yeoman 
collectors uh, from a variety of different platforms, uh, both air breathing and not. And we, uh, we lived on that information. The trouble is that many of the threat uh, emitters out there were mobile. And if they uh, changed their position, then we had to be uh, prepared to change our damming strategies and, and pointing angles and things like that on the fly. That's why it wasn't, it's, it's not able to be a uh, sort of a set and forget kind of a automatic program. Somebody has to be in there uh, actually looking at the battle as it unfolds in real time and then changing the, the, the plan as uh, the pop-up traffic uh, presented itself. Good question. Yeah, so, so one of our limitations, one of our limitations was we really only had one radio channel, as as I remember it. We had a, a standard UHF radio with Havquick was in there, and then we had uh, one of the crypto numbers, whether it was KY fifty eight or or something. So we, but we could only be on one frequency at a time. And so, uh, you know, it would have been nice to be on the air-to-air -air frequency talking to your air cap or be on the air-to-ground frequency with the folks that you're providing jamming for and try to be on the radio with a rivet joint or somebody else that had some, some higher knowledge. But uh, we didn't have that. We didn't have two radios. That would have been a, a nice addition. Would have, would have taken us into the high-value asset um, club a, a little bit more easily because they could actually, they had the computer software, I think on the river rivet joint to, to try to get a real time geolocation. Whereas as Dave's describing, it becomes more of a map reading exercise and in comparing what the received direction is to, to what you thought it should be. You know, if you're at a particular point and the SA3 is coming from somewhere else, now you have to watch it for a little while to try to figure out where it might actually be. On, on the the signal processing that you described, then I mean, you you, you talked super about what um, you know what's that threat system doing with the reflected energy that it's it's receiving? Um, is there not a set of you know out the box answers to that? So if it's an SA two, you know it's going to be doing this with the, the data. If it's an SA three, it's going to be doing that. If it's an SA five, it's going to be doing that. Uh, is there a suggestion that uh, an individual operator could somehow tune or configure? Um, you know, their radar to behave in a certain way, and, and that's the intelligence you needed to get hold of? Well, um, there's that. It, just how the ones and zeros get processed in the receiver is is a mystery, right, to an ELINT collector. They don't, they don't really get to see that. They just get to see what's radiated toward them. And that tells us important information about the waveform and the frequency and things like that. But how that received information is processed in the machine, uh, that takes some higher level Intel skills. And I'll leave it at that. Uh, but that's the real important part, right? How, how is that operator perceiving both my jamming energy? Uh, what is he or she doing to mitigate that? Uh, what do those mitigations do to their ability to uh, breakout targets at range. Um, there's a real back and forth chess match that's going on between uh, an EF-111 EWO and an operator of a system. 
And remember, the systems that we're targeting are not the shooters generally, uh, although we did do the acquisition piece of many of the shooters. Uh, most of ours were going to big um, division level assets that were then sending their pointing information to the shooters uh, electronically. And, and the nuances and sort of the art of how you tweak your radar and how you counter tweak the jamming and how we could, we could see all that developing uh, or many of those things developing from the received uh, signal that we got, uh, we would know if they were employing a certain ECCM tactic, for instance. Uh, and then we might have to change what jamming profile or waveform that we, we use because of that. So there was a back and forth chess match. But usually these engagements only lasted long enough to get the strikers in and out of the target. And, uh, and we weren't just out there cooking away for hours and hours at a time. It was very much on timing, on location, ready, ready now. Get them in, watch the bombs go off, get them out, and then get the heck out of there. And so um, like the jamming packages, you had the ability to spread the jamming over a broad area. So if, you're, if either your intelligence was poor or you didn't know exactly which frequency the opponent was, the enemy was going to start on, you might start with a broad piece of energy, but once they transmit in a certain range, you would like to match that range because it's not just, it's not just watts, it's watts per hertz. So right. the tighter your jamming package, the more powerful your jamming, the better your ability to punch into his radar because we, uh, when the radar is pointed directly at us, he's got his main side lobe. So a radar has multiple lobes. It has one big lobe and then a bunch of little side lobes. If, if you are right on that guy's frequency, even when he looks away from you, you're punching into one of his side lobes. He, it might be three or 10 or 20 dB lower, but if I have enough power and I'm right on the same frequency that he's transmitting and receiving on, I can punch into the side lobes and get, I can blank out 90 degrees of his screen. Uh, and, and so, so being able to concentrate that jamming, you know, uh, watts per hertz uh, could make a difference. And so, with the fidelity of the receiver, you could you could definitely get on the uh, get on the uh, the right frequency. And then there were the different jamming techniques as well. Dif different uh, as, as the radars got newer, they had better and better ECCM techniques. And, and uh, we had a few packages that I think they could kind of monitor. Uh, I don't know that they would change ECCM techniques, but they definitely moved around in frequencies. Some of that was automated and, and some of it was, uh, was the operator. Yeah, so we, our, our goal was to not dilute ourselves any more than we had to. We would concentrate on just the frequencies that they were radiating at, sometimes you know, right on that frequency. Uh, and so if our receivers, for instance, were not calibrated correctly to our jammers, the receiver would sense it at a certain frequency. And if our jammers were out of kilter, they would transmit on slightly different frequency and we could miss them completely. And so it was important for our maintainers, God bless every single one of them, 
to tweak that and get it exactly lined up. So what we were receiving was exactly the carrier wave frequency that we were transmitting on. And, and then we could check the target. And, and my hat's off to people who brought out like open air spectrum analyzers uh, that we could radiate against and they would go, yeah, it looks like you're off by a, um, a quarter of a Hertz or whatever, right? So they would then go in and just sweep those jammers so that they were spot on. Uh, very much a, a fine-tuning Indy 500 pit crew kind of a mentality in our, in our maintenance shops, especially for the jammer guys. Those, those guys were great. And uh, on that subject, uh, I kind of reached out to another uh, one, of the, one of the EVOs that I uh, enjoyed flying with, Jay. Jay and and he pointed that out that once we got deployed over there that was not part of our standard deployment package that spectrum analyzer mm -hmm. and so uh, Jay said our Intel guys they had to fight to get the crypto pipe back to back to our national resources because uh, CENTCOM's Intel Air Force Intel guys they thought they had plenty and we said no we need the real details. You got to get us a satellite dish. You got to get us the crypto so that so that we can get the up to date data. And our our EWOs and our our weapons shop they fought to get those spectrum analyzers because we knew we had some inclination that our transmitters were wandering off their intended frequencies, uh, and so we had to get some extra gear. And and so uh, you know both the Intel guys, the maintenance guys, and our EWOs really worked closely to uh, you know to take this weapon system that was well done but really got it fine-tuned uh for that conflict go ahead yeah so just just going back a, a little bit then in in the conversation to the the mission so this i, I want to stay with the detail because this is good but I, I wanted to just make sure that the sort of context is is set there were three types of jamming mission that the airplane was supposed to uh, execute on is that correct can, can you describe those? Uh, so to me, the most fun was the pen escort because uh, you're, you're closely coordinating with whoever the uh, strike package is. Uh, I had some fantastic opportunities at Red Flag. The most memorable was uh, we were going with some A7s out of one of the longtime A7 units, and it was a four-ship of, of these uh, A7s. And they were flying nap of the earth over top of the ridges. They just moved through the red flag terrain like water. It was unbelievable. And so, uh, and then got to do some with the new F-16 guys. Uh, it was, you know, the A-7 guys were much better flyers on that particular week. They would go over the ridge lines inverted and uh, just, it was just a pleasure to watch them fly. So pen escorts, to me, were the, were the most fun. They were the most challenging. A uh, little bit of challenge with the strike package because you're asking them for details of exactly how they're going to run the mission. And they, they're not used to that. You know, they want to do their planning on their schedule. They, they weren't quite so sure about having this EF-111, you know, ask them these questions. And, you know, we're, we're just trying to get alignment. You know, we want, we want to make sure that we know the same threat uh, radars that they're going against, we want to try to align with them to get to get our jamming lined up with their aircraft lined up with the threat emitter. 
so pen escort got to go fast fly low and uh then the, the closing jam the kind of the taco shape uh as as dave described we would actually go in a little bit first so we would again we're trying to coordinate with the strike package and we want to go in front of them so that our first jamming is uh is masking them as they're flying underneath us and then as as flight lead uh goes off on his first first turn number two is just coming into his primary jamming and so we wanted to have this really powerful strobe as they're going in on their on their target and then the standoff jam was kind of an area jam where uh we would troll back and forth uh as i remember our um yeah, we would always practice all three when when we're flying practice missions at home. Uh, as it turned out, I think the greatest utility was typically the close-in jam. Uh, and then uh, in the case of Des Desert Storm, which we'll get around to sooner or later, we ended up flying some very long standoff jam missions uh, just back and forth along the border as, as the A-10s and F-16s are are striking large area targets. I think there was, Rick Graham told me that he even flew in support of B-52s one time uh, with, with kind of a, a large area jam. So uh, yeah, so, you know, from our capabilities briefing, that was, that was, we would have this little road show that we were constantly, our plans and weapons guys are constantly out on the road briefing other units. And when we get to red flag, uh, you know, the three main jamming types, you know, pen escort, Closing jam, standoff jam, and then we, you know, would have some kind of canned uh, descriptions of of how that works. And then we did have a few others. There, there was always someone like myself or another person that's like, you know, if we flew just a little bit different, we could really optimize. And I had I had forgotten some of those. Dave mentioned them that we probably had wieners and uh, and hot dog in a bun. You know, so uh, what do you remember, Dave? Uh, well, there, as 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 particularly Desert Storm evolved, uh, we sort of evolved with it, and and it evolved with the threat, right? The the threat on night one, uh, definitely different than the threat, you know, guarding the signing of the peace treaty at the end, right? Uh, the the enemy had uh, different capabilities by the end of the war than they did at the beginning. So our tactics and uh, our jamming platform um, patterns and things like that would have to change uh, to, to match that. Uh, at the first night of the war, for instance, we would, we would go in with a strike package of F-111Fs, let's say, striking a target. And we would very closely coordinate with them so that we knew exactly within just seconds, right? Everybody had to maintain their timing perfectly because there was no data links back then. There, was, there wasn't even a lot of UHF calm, right? It was, we're going to be here at this time, uh, so you be there too, or otherwise you'll be out from underneath your jamming protection. Uh, which was good and bad, right? It, it caused some um, irritation, I think, in the strike package community. They were like, I want to be free to, you know, Rolex uh, two or three minutes. And we would be like, no, you can Rolex five seconds maybe. 
And they were like, dang, I guess I'm going to have to be on time, exactly on time. Uh, and, and some people didn't like that, right? Especially for an EF-111, uh, you got to realize our eyeballs cannot see uh, these longer wavelength jamming strobes, right? All right? We're tuned to visible light, right? At 5,000 Kelvin that the sun puts out. These waveforms that we're putting out are much longer wavelength that our eyes can't see. So, so nobody can see the light show. It's not like a laser light show. If, if our eyes could see those frequencies, it would have been quite impressive. Uh, the, the beams of energy coming out of the belly of that EF-111 would have been awesome. I kind of wish I could see it, could see them, but you can't see them. And, and all you, the only way you know that the EF-111 is effective or not is whether you check in with AWACS post-strike, right? If, if you made it, then probably the EF-111 was effective at taking down the probabilities of those early kill chain links. Uh, if you didn't, and that happened many times, but I think, for instance, during Desert Storm, I don't think there was a single documented time when a striker was uh, shot by a radar-guided missile while the EF-111 was jamming. Uh, so it was pretty effective, but you just can't see it with your eyes. There's no explosion. There's no laser beam. There's, and, and the effect was the same in the cockpit, right? We, our hair didn't stand on end. Uh, we didn't see blue lightning. We, you know, there, none of those old wives tell stories. We didn't have to sit on aluminum foil and none of our kids grew free heads or developed superpowers later on. None of that happened, right? So when there's no evidence that your, your missile hit the target or your laser-guided bomb shacked the hardened aircraft shelter or whatever, it's really hard to sell yourself. All you can sell yourself on is, did you check in with AWACT post-strike? The answer is yes, then we did our job. So, so this this alludes to I, I don't want to go there right now. So, so um, sure. but it does allude to some cultural things that that came through very strongly in the um, communications that you were sharing before we did the interview. You know, around working with other platforms and demonstrating your your value and 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 so on. Um, but just sticking with the technicalities for the moment before we get into that sort of um, you know the the cultural side of things and the relationship side of things with other with other platforms. But so. If I'm understanding this correctly, if you do a penetration or, or a pen mission, you mm -hmm. are in the strike package with them, flying in some kind of formation with them, and you're bound to them. If you're doing the close-in jamming, you're very close to them, but you are doing your own thing, and you're going to pull out in front of them and lay down this, this jamming, and, and they're going to go in and do their stuff, and you're going to egress on your own, presumably, or, or independently of them. So, so how much... Uh, I, I guess the question I've got is really sort of two things is two questions around oh. techniques and around power. So, you know, we know it's common knowledge range gate stealing is a jamming technique. You know, you can use it against a fighter airplane to, to pull the lock off and, and so on and so forth. Are you doing that kind of, is that kind of a, a deception jamming thing? Are you doing barrage jamming? Uh, if you are bound to a strike package, um, so super, you mentioned in your, your comments that there were some axes, 
that the jamming platforms that the 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 jamming on the F one eleven was more effective in I think you said did you say seven and two and five and eleven or something like that. Um, do you limit your ability if you do that sort of penetration mission versus doing the the close in? What exactly is happening um, from a uh, you know sort of a, a, an electromagnetic magnetic point of view? Yeah, there. That's that's a question that has a, a much more nuanced answer than just yeah we do that. There might be you know dozens of emitters that have line of sight with the strike package uh, as they enter the weapon engagement zone. So what I do for this emitter, what jamming technique or waveform that I use for this emitter may not be effective for that emitter. And and so I might have three band eight transmitters, for instance, and those were all locked. uh, So I, I had three different azimuths could aim energy at, but I could I could pick waveforms and I could pick uh, the spread of the spot size uh, within band eight, but I couldn't make that energy go in a different direction. So again, we would lash up with Intel and go, okay, for this particular emitter, what is it susceptible to? I don't need it to to go away forever, right? I'm not obliterating it like with a laser blaster, Death Star. I'm just blinding it, right? I'm throwing sand in its eyes. And while it's blinking for a couple of minutes to try to wash that out, my strikers are in and out safely. And that's all I really care about. So for all those dozens of emitters, I'm optimizing the jamming assets that I have available to me. And I'm coordinating that with the wingman Iwo as well. And we are, we are putting on sometimes a barrage, just plain blast them, right? Get them with as much energy as we can. And we have an energy advantage, right? Because the radar range equation uh, for one way, the, for a one way path, right? From a jammer to a receiver on the ground, uh, is proportional to one over the range to that target squared. But uh, an emitter on the ground has to ha- send out energy that has to go both ways, right? So that proportional to one over R to the fourth. So they have to send out a whole ton of energy to get a very weak signal back to their receiver. I, I only have to go one way, so I can, I can slam them pretty hard with a smaller wattage, but much more effective than their weak signal that's just coming off uh, of another target. So that so we have an energy advantage going one direction. Some radars are more susceptible to that than others. Uh, some of them have much dirtier side lobes and wider band beam widths and things than others. So I can blot out their scope. Or I might want to be more subtle, right? I might want to have their scope appear normal and just have the targets that are synthetically displayed to them just blink off and, and have it not that apparent that they're being jammed. So a, a much more subtle technique might be useful for uh, a particular emitter that 
that wouldn't even alert the the operator that 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 particular radar is being jammed at all. There there's uh, quite an art to it, and and lashed up with Intel, uh, we optimized uh, our particular equipment to the scenario at hand, and every scenario was different. So it. Uh, so you mentioned a particular technique, uh, range gate pull off. So uh, I think that would be most appropriate, like like a one on one, a fighter fighter v fighter, uh, to trying to protect himself once he got locked up by the uh, target tracking radar. So we were, as Dave mentioned, our our transmitters, our frequencies, and jamming packages were optimum for uh, the early warning radars. They, uh, they're trying to see out 250 miles. And so they're very sensitive radars. They're, that radar jamming equation really helps us out there. They're, they're sensitive to 250 and here we are at 50 or 30 miles or something away. We, we have both loads of energy to very much overwhelm them. Uh, but not every time do you wanna use the hammer uh, on everything, as, as Dave said, sometimes you could watch them for a little bit and actually react to them. But what we didn't have is we didn't have perfect knowledge of where our strike package was. So if, if that radar actually has a valid target on the screen, we would not be able to surreptitiously add energy and add a delay or actually add a, a little pre-energy. You know, it, it'd be nice to make the simulated targets look closer, but we didn't have that kind of perfect energy. We, we had our own onboard jamming equipment. Uh, we didn't carry a 131 pod or anything like that. There'd have been probably no way to sequence that in with every other piece of emission we had. Uh, uh, but we could work, uh, so we were optimized, our programs and the data that we were forwarded from the national assets for the early warning radars and the target acquisition radars then the, the target, the target uh, engagement radars, uh, you know, we wouldn't try to get into those. The, our goal was to get that striker so close that the, uh, the target engagement guy wouldn't have time because to, to put a missile on target, uh, you know, we can just throw a number out there, might actually take 30 seconds, you know, from the time the target acquisition radar uh, or the target tracking radar gets it, they need to establish a vector, you know, uh, decide amongst their missile battery who's going to actually engage that target. All of that takes time. And, uh, and we did have some pretty good knowledge on that because the designers of the system shared some of that knowledge with us. And uh, so uh, um, we, so our goal was to get them into that, like that one minute range or that two minute range, which would just overwhelm the operator. Those techniques tended to be like World War I language would be barrage jamming. Uh, in our language, it, they were versions of different kinds of false targets and, and, uh, and modify the receiver's gain. If we could put just a little bit of noise out there, the, the uh, early warning or acquisition radar might think, ah, dang, you know, those sunspots are really acting up today. I need to, I need to turn my gain down. Otherwise I'm going to be full of noise. And so we could, 
we could squeeze their gains and all the the actual targets would disappear you know and uh, so there but they would kind of fall into the false target garage jamming range but uh, but not individual targets we we couldn't modify what the what the radar was seeing of actual targets at least not that i remember and we had some limitations as far as power goes. So think think about converting an F-111A model, a bomb-dropping lizard, to an EF-111. The EF-111 has to transmit energy, right? So in, in order to get more energy, you have to have a bigger electrical generator. So instead of a, a 62.5 kVA generator on a regular bomb-dropper, now we're doing 90 kVA. Uh, on the EF-111. Well, when you're generating power, that, that power is not 100% efficient. So there's some waste heat that now you have to get rid of somehow. So the EF-111 has a liquid cooling system for the jammers when they're jamming, right? It, it's cool and all, and then you have to take the heat out of the coolant with a radiator and so we have radiators mounted uh, between the horizontal stabilizers and the engines that opened up when the jammers were on and that cooled off the coolant off. We also needed additional um, ram air cooling to the drive generators, the integrated drive generators, these 90 kVA generators that were out there. So one, one uh, change leads to another change and another change and another change. And at the end of the day, uh, the EF-111 is about four tons heavier than, than a regular A model and you can't jettison any of that. So, so there's a limit to how much power you can get out, which drove some of our tactics to be closer into the target, for instance, than we otherwise would. It'd be nice if we could just sit out there with AWACS and the tankers and just blot out everybody with uh, a ton of energy, but, but there's a limit to that. So we had to go in with the strike package and get close in enough to get enough energy on all these different uh, acquisition and GCI and early warning radars to take down their, their kill chains. Yeah, so, so typically that range would keep us outside of the missile, the missile envelope of the of the threat radar, the threat system. But we we knew that there's advantages to be closer. You can you could you could cover more packages. So if you have more strikers, if you're a little bit closer, you could cover more axes of attack, which is good because uh, you know one of the challenges with El Dorado Canyon is they replanned it so many times that they just gave up and just sent everyone in on, on in in one big stream uh, you know we wanted to be able to get as close as possible as close as practical uh, without too much risking the high value asset and in order to do that uh, we would come up with pre-planned code words to pull back so if we got warned that that there was a you know a missile active looked like it was getting ready to fire you know we could see uh, we could see target tracking radar activity for ourselves, you know, so we would plan ahead that, you know, if we were going to push the boundary a little bit and, and put ourselves at risk uh, on the standoff jam, the, the pen escort 
you're kind of incurring the same risk as a strike package. But uh, in the standoff, Jim, we would have a, a retrograde option where we would pull back by, you know, 15 or 20 miles or something like that. So we would we would try to push in closer because of that energy limit. You know, we uh, you can cover more more lanes, more strike package lanes if you get in a little bit closer. So we tried to, but it it wasn't really re required of us to put ourselves in uh, completely in harm's way. So there was a little bit of a balancing there, and especially on the first desert storm type situation, you know, the first three or four nights, uh, we were definitely pushing ourselves as close as possible. On the practice side of it kind of some red flag stories, uh, you know, oftentimes we were very limited in what we could do in red flag as, as Dave alluded to, uh, um, no one could see our jamming. And on top of that, we were restricted as to what we could jam at red flag. They didn't want us to jam any of the actual radars because that would screw up the whole air war and they would have to abort because they couldn't see each other for safety purposes. And so that was always stuck in our craw is uh, we got to participate in a lot, a lot of red flags and integrated with a lot of people, but they never were really able to see our value at red flag because the war went on all just the same. You know, we would get an honorable mention. Oh yeah, and the EF-111s, we saw a little bit of your jamming. Like you'd have seen a lot more if you'd have let us actually jam. And so, so uh, um, yeah, so power, power was a factor. There was a limit in that particular platform. Yeah, and it also bears mentioning when we're talking about developing the EF-111 as a system, uh, they went in and gutted the, the airframe. They even took the wires in the wings that go out to the pylons. Uh, part of that was trying to save weight, but a bigger part is, is more of a culture thing, right? They didn't want the EF-111 feeling like they could go hunting uh, so there was no capability, for instance, even for a self-protection uh, IR missile on, on, the on the pylon uh, because they pulled the wiring out of that to, to uh, the cockpit. So there's no capability to put an anti-radiation missile, for instance, on uh, the EF-111 either, right? So there's no, no offensive capability uh, built in uh, by design uh, that drove other platforms to have to protect us. And it also drove us to get as close to the threat as we could without uh, actually going uh, where we could get shot down. And the, one of those congressional testimonies that I came across when I was doing a little research for this uh, pointed out that the original replacement concept they gave it a name, PAVE Strike. There, there's a lot of other PAVE programs, PAVE Low, PAVE Tech. And, uh, and so this one was actually presented one year as PAVE Strike, but it was a combination of two airplanes, the EF-111 and the modified F-4 Wild Weasel. And so the EF-111 would have had to have a new uh, bomb dropping system, would have had to have a new weapons system installed in order to operate that, that missile because the existing wiring harness did not have the ability to transmit any data to, to a, uh, a harm missile. So that would have driven the cost up 
probably above that billion dollars. And so, uh, so by splitting it into two dedicated platforms, the Wild Weasel and the EF-111, they kept the price and the reliability of the EF-111 uh, manageable and, uh, and, and just did their investment into the F-4 as far as the new weapons data bus and all the rest of that. And it kept us from ever getting a tacit rainbow so we wouldn't go become hunter-killers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what about the impact then of your jamming on um, friendly assets, on, on blue assets? Um, how, how did you, I mean, well, presumably mutual interference is a fact of life in the electromagnetic spectrum. So what, what did you do? What, what, what could you do? How did you mitigate against it? Um, what what uh, was the story behind that? The uh, I don't know. They were probably till, still telling the stories when Dave uh, got there. So, so, uh, um, one of the there were a lot of great stories and and uh, each one of the stories what you know one of the things you hear about other airplanes the dash one is written in blood well our operating frequencies were written in all of the mistakes that or all the things that became apparent as time went on and uh, so when the ef-111s got stationed at mountain home the uh, so when i'm there the initial cadre are coming back and 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 each one of those frequency restrictions, they could tell us why. One of them was, oh, yeah, I remember that one. That's when, when all the doctor's pagers went off. You know, so, uh, so they're out there on Sailor Creek jamming, you know, jamming some threat simulator. And up in Boise, Idaho, all the doctor's pagers are going off. And so a, a few days later, you know, we, you know they, they find out and they, they assess that it's probably those EF-111s. And then and then you ask about another frequency restriction that's right in the middle of one of our threat radars. Like, oh, yeah, that was all the garage door openers. You know, you know, <laughs> when, when we got that threat simulation, uh, you know, a week later, we found out all the garage doors were going up and down all around western Idaho. So uh, so we had to put that right in the middle of our of our uh, practice range. Uh, otherwise. Um, I think the Navy and the Air Force had a little bit different approach. We had a few threat simulators at Sailor Creek. There were more down at one of the Navy ranges. I know we used to go down to Fallon or something like that. They had a really nice set of threat emitters, and, uh, and, and we, could, we could jam a little bit more liberally down there and actually get some feedback on, uh, on how we did. Uh, what do you remember there, Dave? Yeah, there were there were a bunch of things, and when you're talking about electromagnetic interference, well, you can look at the design of the airplane itself. The the jamming comes out of the belly here at the canoe radome, and out of these uh, blade antennas that sit over the main landing gear. That's where the jamming comes out. But the structure of the airplane is such that it's it's isolating the jam the receivers. And there are also receivers up here in the wing gloves. And these little antennas we call the Pontiac antennas were part of our own self-protection system. There are also uh, self-protection jammers uh, on either side of the, the engine exhausts. But we, we could jam ourselves, right? So when you have uh, electromagnetic energy going out, there is an interference that happens even sometimes when you're not on that particular frequency. And it became a problem for us, for our IFF, for instance. Uh, it, it made it 
unreliable, let's say, uh, to see in a uh, mode four signal from an EF11 that's jammed. So you had to be careful that you didn't hurt yourself and uh, to sort of go along with your question, we had to be careful not to accidentally take out our own AWACS, for instance, or our own um, uh, allied systems. Sometimes those allied systems would be uh, the same systems that were running by the, the enemy, right? Uh, during Desert Storm, for instance, the Syrians were on our side, but they were, they were shooting the same SAMs as the bad guys. The Kuwaiti Air Force in exile flew the same model of the Mirage F-1 that the Iraqis did. Uh, so, so we had to be very savvy about the direction that our receivers were saying that was coming from. And we also had to know what the whole strike package in the war plan was so that we could sort ourselves between who are the good emitters and who are the bad emitters. The, uh, I don't remember which manual it was in, but I think we had a uh, some kind of a diagram that showed what might happen over the period of one second or or a hundred milliseconds. Uh, your UHF radio could transmit here, and then the UHF is blocked out, and then your jamming transmitter comes on for ten milliseconds, and then it's blocked out. Your terrain following radar comes on for ten milliseconds, and it's blocked out. And then, uh, and then another band gets to come on. And so there was this nice little description that showed how all the electronic systems on the EF-111 were all interleaved with, with just a whole bunch of, of little stops and starts. And, uh, and, and uh, as you mentioned, the, the Syrians on the, on the friendly side, that was one of the very strange things at, at Desert Storm when we first got up there was was to be monitoring your own radar warning receiver gear. And you're like, that's a real SA3 transmitting below me. <laughs> you're just, and you're watching it and making sure there's no, that the target acquisition radar doesn't light up, that it just stays in, in target acquisition, you know, no target tracking, no missile warnings. And uh, you know, so we, you know, ultimately, ultimately we never got zapped by that. Now, at, at Red Flag, for instance, I just remember all kinds of transmitter restrictions down there. Did, did they have any sort of a EW range for us to operate against? Or do you remember? Yeah, there's an outstanding EW range there. But it's like you said, uh, we were restricted uh, for safety reasons and for just sort of training value reasons. If, if we did everything we could, the rest of the strike package might not get the training that they need to get about, you know, protecting themselves or, or um, evading surface to air missiles, for instance. Uh, an outstanding threat array down there, but uh, it was white carded. Um, you, you can't touch that guy, you can't touch him. Or some of the SAMs were white carded. You can't operate otherwise the strike package all gets destroyed and nobody gets any training value. So th there were a lot of restrictions uh, for a variety of different reasons, some intelligence reasons, some security reasons, some safety reasons. Uh, but 
we always had to be very careful what we showed because there were also collectors out there uh, that didn't necessarily have our best interests in mind uh, to know exactly what we could do and what we couldn't. Yeah, because the uh, we have those uh, salt treaties, so the our our potential opponents had aircraft that that they knowingly flew around you know, to monitor all of our strategic missile assets and other things like that, and and it was strongly suspected that in their baggage were probably some other collectors as well, and so uh, so we I I do remember once in a while that our our uh, flight and training profiles were modified on the days that the, that the strategic uh, treaty inspectors were in town and uh, f flying around looking at the missile fields and the, and the B-52s chopped up in Davis month and then whatnot. I was going to ask then if you, if you've got these capabilities that you don't want to, you know, you don't want to burn them by exposing them to the, you know, the enemy, how do you train? And uh, is it was there in those days some synthetic capability where you could, you know, the airplane could be told run this jamming routine, but it didn't actually transmit, um, but it looked like that to you? Uh, what, what, did, what did you do? Uh, as a practical matter, we could we could make the display look like it was jamming right up to the no kidding master radiate switch. We could we could simulate it that far. But as far as putting no kidding energy out, uh, we were restricted. We could do a lot of things in simulators, right? Under tempested, in tempested facilities that protected the waveforms and things like that. Uh, and they did the best that they could, but there's a limitation to seeing uh, many of our pilots, for instance, would have never actually seen the full effect of going to master radiate, no kidding, uh, full blast, because that's drawing a bunch of bleed air off the engines. It's, it's causing the engines to be more susceptible to compressor stalls. It's, it's causing additional heat. It's causing additional IR signature. It's causing a whole bunch of things that, that we were restricted from training, uh, and only saw for the first time sometimes in no kidding combat. Yeah, I think that happened on the first night. Dave uh, located a, an early test report from the 77 time frame, and the, the test crews pointed out that this, this high draw of power, I th I th and rather than putting actual jammers in there, it sounded like they had a resistive load right. on some of them. And, and when they would pull the, the max load of power, that the engines were very susceptible to uh, having, you know, with the bleed air, with the bleed air pulled off, it changes the dynamics of the fuel control. And I think that happened to me on the first night. I think I had a couple of rollbacks and, and a couple of blooms of flame and, and uh, there's missiles flying around. And, and then there's this bright light in the clouds that we're flying in. And, and uh, I, had to, I had to admit that it was me jockeying around with the throttles that called the end caused the engine to roll back and when that happens you got to put the other one into afterburner to maintain your speed because you're just coming up on a six degree bank 2g turn that requires full mill power so if you roll back an engine the other engine has to go into afterburner and so uh, so there were a few extra blooms of flame uh, in the clouds i think the first night and 
And uh, it, that could very well have been for me not realizing the effect of full jamming on the, on the bleed air in the engine. It, it did cause them to, to reevaluate. I actually have the test report here that I pulled from the tech library at Edwards on the EF-111 prototype. And they did use a dummy load, but they flew it with the dash, uh, the TF-30-3 engine, uh, the P3 engine uh, in the prototype, and they found it was unsuitable. They also found out that the structure of the tail was insufficient to support all of the weight in the football, uh, the receiver pod that's up at the tip of the tail. So there was a lot of rework that had to happen between 1977 when this test report was done uh, to the final configuration that finally went IOC in 1983, including the uh, upgraded uh, P9 engines that the EF-11 had to try to mit mitigate some of that uh, compressor stall problem. I was thinking, Pyro. I mean, I'm I'm coming up to a hard stop on time, but I, yeah. I yeah. in your in your sort of your back and forth over email, there's some very interesting observations about the handling characteristics of the aeroplane, what it was like to fly it. So, what I was thinking was uh, for our next interview, let's start with that, but close this one maybe with just one more question for Super from me. Then, uh, just around the presentation of the threats on the display you mentioned the computer being 1970s you think of you know the, the game pong what what did you what were you actually seeing on your display how much interpretation was required uh, was it synthetically generated did you see any raw returns what was the the presentation to you yeah uh, that's a great question uh, imagine a uh, old style cathode ray tube tv black and white, in this case, green and black. Uh, so in the vertical configuration, so it was taller than it was wide. Uh, across the top, you could see the azimuth and vertically you would see a presentation of, of the frequencies that you were scanning with the, uh, with the receivers. You would program the computer so that if it it saw a signal that had a certain frequency and a certain PRI or PRF and a certain pulse width, some, some things about the waveform that were unique to that particular system. Uh, the EWO would say, okay, uh, put a B on my scope, right? A capital letter B at that frequency at the line of position that the receiver received it from. So that, those, that was all you got. And it was a synthetic display. It was just a B. And then on top of all of those different receivers uh, products, so you'd get you know, a B here and a B here and a K for a different emitter here and a A for, you know, you could program it to just put whatever alphabet letter you wanted uh, on there, but it was just one letter and it would show you what frequency it was at and what direction it came from. And then on top of that, you'd get your jammers, you'd assign jammers, and they had a certain beam width in, in azimuth. So that beam width would show up as the, as the vertical part, uh, I'm sorry, as the horizontal part of a rectangle. And then the frequency that it was covering 
right? Whether it was sweeping in frequency or really specific would depend on how big the rectangle or how tall the rectangle was. And so if the rectangle was on top of your little letter, then you knew that that particular jammer was going to get that letter if you were to radiate. And, uh, and so multiply that times all the different uh, jamming spots that we had available to us. And we could get, uh, I think there were 40 different spots that we could put out uh, in whatever direction we wanted. And the computer would keep track of, of pointing it for us so that it was geographically stabilized to a particular spot on the earth. So, a, uh, so two items on that one. So one was the mention of our, of our uh, tempested thing. So we had one of the largest tempested buildings probably in tactical air command next to red flag. And so we could have some simulators that they could work with. Dave, what was your preparation for uh, being an EWO back there at Mather? Seems to me I heard about having to identify. Yeah, there. I mean, there's an art to it. I, I love EWOs. It's an esoteric skill, like I said, that nobody really understands except for us. Uh, and you could identify emitters by the sound that they made. And by the pitch of the sound and all of that, we, we did all that. Now, the EF-111 had very little uh, uh, need for identifying signals by sound. We would do it by waveform type, but uh, uh, you still had to, you had to know all the little quirks of all the different types of emitters that were out there so that you could tell this model of SA-2 from that model of SA-2, because the jamming, uh, package might be different because the technology is a little bit different. How many threat types did you have to, to, to know about then? I mean, ballpark. Oh, hundreds. Really? And we, and we had to commit them all to memory, right? We, we knew their frequencies, we knew their PRS uh, and their pulse widths and everything by heart. We, which, uh... which made us you know, targets in the red flag locker room, right? It was geeks against the jocks and we weren't the jocks. I mean, how, how thick, uh, I remember there being like a master book of emitters probably worldwide or something, yeah. but it was inches thick or, and, and when we deployed to a particular theater, uh, like we got to participate in Bright Star. And so I remember the, you know, all the EWOs working together to come up with the admitter list, even though we probably weren't going to jam anything at Bright Star, uh, they still treated it like a, like a full up exercise. You know, who is it we are actually going against? And they would update all of their emitter data, you know. Uh, and so we had books and books back there in the weapons shop full of real world emitters, actual emitters with their actual nomenclature and, and specific uh geographic location so uh yes yeah. wow well i think uh, the, the obvious question now to ask is will you come back and do a part two? Oh, hi man sure. this is a blast i, I feel like napoleon dynamite's uncle rico you know Li <laughs> living my glory days all over again excellent i could throw a football over that mountain and it only has to be 10 percent true it does and so i have I have to plug the podcast. <laughs>
So here's, here's, here's what I'm thinking. Um, let's get back together again, and we will do, I think, probably start by talking about flying the aeroplane. We'll look at uh, Pyro's observations around uh, the, you know, the the idiosyncrasies of the F-111 from a pilot's point of view. Uh, I'd like to cover the cultural side of things. I'd like to cover the relationship with other communities and some of the challenges you had to overcome in doing that, and talk a little bit then more about uh, Red Flag. And we've talked about it a little bit uh, on, on this call, but I think... A little bit more information about exactly how things went down at Red Flag would be good. Um, there were some stories that Pyro told uh, on the email chain that it would be good to get out and uh, talk about. And then we'll move on to talking about getting ready for war. There is actually another question I was going to ask. Not now, but next time around. Um, so uh, I think, Pyro, you mentioned it, uh, Eldorado Canyon. be really interested to know what you guys knew about that, the, um, the contribution of the EF to that particular one-off event and uh, whether or not that was informative in any way for for when you you know went to war four or so years later so but for now i'll say thank you very much it's been great talking to you uh, really nice meeting you both thank you for your time this has been great and i'm really looking forward to part two likewise steve thanks for tuning in to 10 percent true i hope you enjoyed this episode Feel free to subscribe and if you're on youtube hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode Thanks and take care.